1: Welcome to the 206th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Drew Stotler. Drew is the founder of Stotler Wealth Management, a hybrid advisory firm based in the suburbs of St. Louis, serving 100 middle-income clients. What's unique about Drew, though, is his path to building his own advisory firm, having started his career in the employee advisor model at Edward Jones, deciding to break away to an independent broker-dealer, only to get hit with a temporary restraining order after leaving despite having tried to do everything he could by the book, but ultimately overcoming the challenges as he can now build his advisory firm the way he always wanted to. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Drew built his career as a financial advisor. From starting out in the Edward Jones operations division focused on anti-money laundering reviews before requesting an internal transfer to become an advisor, how Drew built his early client base, literally knocking from door to door in local neighborhoods, what he did to build early rapport and connections while cold knocking, and the books that gave him the inspiration to keep powering forward despite the challenging early years. We also talk about why and how Drew ultimately decided to make a change, why the transition was less about the difference in payouts between employee and independent channels and more about the ability to control his own marketing and be able to actually own the business he was building to someday bring his children in, the independent broker-dealers he evaluated during his path to independence and why he chose LPL, and how Drew has been rebuilding his practice while navigating Edward Jones' stringent non-solicit provisions. And be certain to listen to the end, where Drew shares what makes the advisory business such a unique and appealing career path, the pride of ownership that comes from being able to serve clients the way you think they should be served, and how the transition to independence has made it easier for him to tune out the industry pressures to grow, 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 and focus on what's most important to him instead. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Financial Advisor Success podcast with Drew Stotler. Welcome Drew Stotler to the Financial Advisor Success podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. I'm really looking forward to today's discussion and and getting into one of the I don't know, like the themes and challenges I feel like is very broadly out there in our world of of financial advisors and 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 I don't think we talk about enough which is just what happens when you start your career at at some firm in the industry you know often a large firm just by numbers the the big national firms literally do the majority of the hiring cuz they have the majority of the jobs and the and the volume and you start your career at a, at a large firm and decide at some point through that journey after some number of years that maybe this is not where you want to build your career in the long run and i know particularly because a lot of large firms have a wide range of practices to you know slow people down from breaking away and starting their own firms you know some get fairly aggressive with with legal action, sometimes to try to discourage advisors from leaving, and particularly leaving and bringing their clients with them, I think for some it creates kind of a a, a paralysis fear of of not wanting to ever make a change, even if they're not entirely happy where they are, because of the the fear of what happens if they try to leave and the firm comes after them. and And so I know that Drew, you have you have lived this journey of you know breaking away and making a transition with a large firm, and and having them come after you and try to slow you down along the way and and you're still here and you're still standing you're running an independent firm today and so i'm i'm just i'm looking forward to this discussion of what does this journey actually look like when you when you start out at a big firm and decide that's not the future and then have to make the transition and deal with some of the scary stuff that that comes along the way
2: yeah you know i i probably didn't have the most conventional entrance to the industry but i I started at Ed Jones back in 2011, actually with their anti-money laundering department. So I got a behind-the-scenes view of you know big oh, money. Oh, interesting! Moving. So yeah. like
1: in the just in the guts of investment operations and and money movements and all the stuff that goes on on the back end of. How to how do firms actually make sure that money laundering isn't moving across their platform? Which I, I feel like most of us advisors, we don't really see aside from the nuisancey things where we're trying to like move money for a client or do something and quote, you can't do that. But you know, money laundering is kind of a big thing out there. Most of us don't see it with our clients, but the government has a lot of expectations of large financial institutions to keep an eye on that stuff and basically let the government know if they see questionable activity. So there's some pretty big departments and some large firms just focused on what money's moving around and how to try to spot money laundering.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean every month we would get a report and no joke they would wheel it in on dollies with these big tubs that you would use for storage and on average, you know, it was 17, 18,000 page report and we'd split it up And the whole team would just take a stack each day and start combing through it. And like you said, you know,
1: there was a lot of just very innocent things that would trigger the report. So I'm just curious. I mean, like, what literally is on 17,000 pages of reports every month that a bunch of human beings have to then look at and try to find things on? Like, what do you, what do you like? What are you literally looking at and going through on these reports?
2: I would say ninety percent of it was just very innocent, money moving. Maybe there wasn't a letter of authorization attached. you know, so there was some education to the advisors, hey, you know, you really need to get that signed before before moving that money. And then occasionally you'd see something a little questionable, large wire transfers to third parties that you know the client maybe never moved money to that entity before. So that would cause some suspicion. And I I was kind of on a division inside the team that was more so, you know, I, I kind of call it internal affairs, money moving from advisor to advisor, advisor to client, advisor to assistant. And so those those were more of the, hey, we really got to get involved here and see what's going on, make sure everything's up to snuff.
1: Okay, right. Because once you get advisor to assistant, like you got all sorts of why is this moving outside of compensation and normal payroll and what's going on? And, you know, we have a long list of rules limiting advisor clients, you know, lending interactions, transactions, mingling of assets. So, so that, I guess that's that's when all this starts to queue up. Exactly. Exactly. And I'd say about three
2: or four months into it, you know, I was kind of like, wow, okay, so this is, this is what I'm going to do every day for the rest of the foreseeable future. And it was around that time I started looking around inside the firm, you know, are there other areas where I might be, you know, more suited for my skill set? And that's when I learned about the advisor role. Obviously, I'd been monitoring advisors and I had, you know, into their practice, you know, seeing the millions of dollars they were managing and and just how they were doing that. And, you know, I it, it piqued my interest. And so I inquired and and my team leader said, yeah, you know, I think you'd be great as an advisor. You're very personable, you're affable, but I need you here in this role for 12 months before you can transition anywhere else. And so I spent the next nine months basically Listening and talking to advisors across the nation, you know, and I spoke to everyone. So you were, so you
1: were all of like, th- just be clear. Then you were like three months in on the anti-money laundering stuff, and was like, "This is not for me." Right, right. Okay,
2: yeah, and you know, I wanted to, I wanted to get a wide range of opinions, so I, I would call advisors that were, you know, a month into the business and i and i spoke to some advisors who had been out you know 20 30 years you know just asking them how they built their business and especially on the newer advisor side hey you know are you making it are you surviving because you know traditionally the advisor role i guess has been seen more of a you know sales role in the past and my only experience in sales was selling cutco knives one summer door to door just to you know, just to make ends meet. And they were expensive knives. I mean, you're talking eight hundred, a thousand bucks a set. <laughs> and that was my only experience with sales. And so when when I saw the parallels between, you know, advising and sales, I was like, oh, maybe maybe this isn't for me. And you know, that's really when I started calling these advisors, and, and they really were helpful in I, I guess educating me on really it's about relationships. You know, Edward Jones will train you, you know, get you licensed and all that. But really the job is about relationship management and, and really understanding what's important to clients and then using that specialized knowledge to really help them achieve their goals. And so, you know, I, I spent those those nine months just really trying to scare myself out of it, but it didn't work. And so when that when that twelfth month hit, I resigned from that role and and jumped into the training program to become a financial advisor. So did you have
1: I guess like a- any concerns, fears, hesitations? Like just, you know, you you are talking about I think what for a lot of people is the 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 scary stuff of becoming an advisor, sort of, you know, the 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 pressure of sales or just more generally business development, getting clients, you know, you you only get to eat what you kill as the saying sometimes goes so you got to be able to hunt did you have were you still having some hesitations around that or were there just things you heard that made it not such a big deal like how did you actually process all this as you're having these conversations with advisors and trying to decide am i really taking this leap
2: you know maybe not hesitations but it, you know i'm i'm a very analytical person and so i you know i' Analyzed every different angle, and we had just our daughter was probably one at the time, and we were talking about having another kiddo, and so that that was kind of a, a big concern. You know, are you are you going to make it enough to provide for your family? And fortunately, I had a a bit of a salary. Yeah, I think it was maybe eighteen months or so while I got up and running. So there was there was a bit of that safety net you know, while you're building that initial few clients. That was comforting. I also knew I was one of those that was
1: really too stubborn to fail and I was just gonna make it work no matter what. So to be clear though, like you didn't you didn't go to the original job at Edward Jones in the AML department because this was like your foot in the door pathway to financial advisor. Like you you landed there unrelated, and after getting there, it was like, "Oh, this firm does financial advising. That looks neat." Absolutely, yeah, okay. I, yeah. That's, so, that's a good description. So, what was your background leading up to it that you you know ended out landing in 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 Edward Jones in the AML department in the first place?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I guess in two thousand three, I got my first job with healthcare. You know, my dad was like, "Hey." You know, it's time you get a job with healthcare. You know, I wasn't dating anyone at the time, but my dad, actually, a little bit of a backstory there. He had been shot in the head about 25 years ago. He came home during a uh, robbery in progress in his house. And at the time, he was working for Sprint, I think it was. And he lived through it And, and he's still alive to this day. But I watched, you know, the healthcare system just just almost demolish him luckily he had a good benefits package at the time but when he when he finally got back up on his feet and went back to work he would have seizures on the job you know he sat in front of a computer all day and they found a a way to let him go without it being a, a medical reason and after that he basically spent down his 401k over those those that next decade or so because he, he just couldn't do the same type of work. And that's when he told me. He said, you you've got to get a job that has healthcare, if nothing else, just so that you're protected. So I took a job at a credit union just as a as a teller, worked my way up to like a branch manager, I guess you could call it. And I really liked the client aspect of that. You know, it was, you know, just simple things, you know, depositing money and withdrawals and such. You know, I got away from that and went to a transportation company, and they liked—I get—they liked, I guess you could call it—the numbers background I had, and that was right around two thousand eight when the housing crisis was, was really bad, and they started letting people go. And it was always around Thanksgiving and Christmas, <laughs> and usually it's—you know—last one in, first to leave. But I made it three years without getting laid off, but it was just just a just a bad environment and so that's when I started poking around like you know I should probably have a plan b and my team leader at the time left and went to Edward Jones in their operations department and she started telling me all these good things you know how you know during the great recession they didn't lay a single person off and that really spoke to me and I I thought okay maybe maybe I should just apply
1: and and see where this goes so the the stability of Edward Jones through the through the financial crisis was appealing of just, this is an employer with some stability in a world that doesn't always have stability. This is an appealing place to, to work and build a career. Absolutely.
2: Absolutely. And that's, that's when I applied for the job and they, they liked what they called my, I guess, forensic accounting type background, being able to follow the money. All of my jobs involved, you know, Following money or depositing money. So that's that's where the AML position where I fell into that.
1: So you're going through, you know, the AML position Edward Jones, you decide you want to be on the on the financial advisor side of the business. You talk to a lot of advisors who manage to not not convince you otherwise. So so how did it work when you decided to make the transition? Because I know a lot of firms have different structures of like you're on your own from day one, you get a salary, you get like a draw that's technically in advance against your future commissions, but at least you get it up front. Like, How did it work when you transitioned into an advisor role at Edward Jones?
2: So once I got licensed and went through KYC, know your customer and all that, um, they basically said, hey, there, there's a guy you can um, just kind of share an office with him. And it, it was basically the size of, of my closet in, in the bedroom at home. And I was grateful for the opportunity, not only because I got to learn from a veteran uh, firsthand, but I also had somewhere to meet clients with other than you know the local Starbucks. And so, so we did that for about a year. And then an office came open in an area where I had grown up and so, that advisor actually wanted to leave the field as a financial advisor and go into auditing. First of all, I, I don't
1: know, I don't know why you'd go that way. Usually, it's the other way around. I was going to say, like, usually it's it's the people who start in accounting and auditing and decide they like doing forward-looking planning more than backward-looking accounting who kind of go from accounting side into financial advising. I don't see a lot of people going the other way, so that's uh that was a special guy.
2: Yeah, yeah, and and I got the call from a regional leader saying, you know, hey, this this guy is leaving. We have an opening. We'd like you to come fill in fill in the gap, so to speak. And so I did. And there was there was a handful of clients there, maybe maybe a hundred or so. And so it was a, it was a great start for me. Uh, not a huge book, you know, maybe seven eight million, but I was just transitioning off my salary. So the timing was great because I you know I had some clients, I had a little more stability, some revenue coming in and I thought okay, this this is probably a good opportunity and I need to take it. And so so I backfilled that office and just basically that's that's where I spent the majority of my time at Edward Jones, um, all the way up until I left in, uh, in April of this year. So,
1: so how did it work for you? The first, the first year at, at, at Edward Jones, you, you've kind of mentioned some kind of salary structure. Like, how does it actually work for you? Like, are you just on straight salary or is there some blending thing? Like, how does it work in that first year? Or at least how did it work? I, they may have changed since then.
2: Yeah. Yeah. They, they've they changed it quite a bit, but you had your base salary and then any of the revenues and commissions, you graduated up, you know, the payouts started lower while you were on salary. And then as, as you aged into the business, you know, those, those revenues, the share of it increased, but the salary decreased and, you know, I think a lot of advisors out there know Jones and, you know, the recipe, at least at the time was get out there in the neighborhoods that you live in and, you know, go face to face, go door to door with people and build your business. And so I did that for about, oh man, probably six to eight months started in, I think it was August in the heat of August. And, uh, you know, I'm out there going door to door trying to, you know, let people know I'm in business. That was a hard start, you know, it was not it was not the easiest start, but they wanted to see that that you would do the work before you were able to take a chance at taking over an office. So I actually got out there and met as many people as I could and and started converting those prospects into clients and
1: and it just kind of took off from there. So so can I ask like what what was the salary level that you got to start with and how did it compare to the the AML role you had been in like was this sort of a similar transition or was this we're going to take a step back but we're hoping to get a couple steps forward what was the what was the level you got to start at as a safety net
2: It was pretty much a lateral move. I think I think at the time my salary was 35 to 38,000 and so that's that's basically where I started with a salary as an advisor knowing full well that you know to raise you know a family you know I'd have to get out there and hustle to really to really make it work you know 35 grand a year is you know great for a single guy but you know we wanted more kids and and a different lifestyle so so I was very motivated to build a business just because the salary
1: wasn't what i had hoped and so it sounds like as time goes by like your your salary goes down the hope and presumption is that's because you're getting some business done with clients and you're getting a a growing percentage of the of the revenue that you're generating and you kind of wean yourself off the salary and supplant yourself with with revenue you're bringing in as an advisor and that that transition happens over 18 months
2: Yeah. I want to say the, the, uh, salary was scheduled to end somewhere between 18 to 24 months. So they gave you, you know, that window to really get out there and bust your butt. And, and I did, and, and, you know, there were some, some bonus opportunities here and there, but yeah, it was predominantly salary those early, early days and, you know, calling friends and family, letting them know what I'm doing. And, you know, do you, do you think you could uh, become a client and help me out? Yeah, I think uh, I think my first client was my uncle-in-law Dan, who
1: took a chance on me, and he's still a client to this day. So, I, so I didn't blow it. Interesting, and but it was very heavy, kind of friends and family. Do you think you could help me out and become a client?
2: Right, exactly. You know, calling as many people as I could uh, per day. You know, the recipe was you know get on the phone and and call as many people as you can, make as many contacts as you can. And don't forget friends and family. Luckily they all, they all took a chance on me and I'm very thankful for that.
1: And so what kind of, I guess like business and stuff were you implementing at the time? Like, was this insurance, annuities, like stock and bond portfolios, mutual funds, managed model portfolios? Like what were you, what were you doing with clients or were you, you know, doing standalone plans and charging fees as well.
2: You know, it it started very basic. Find a find an idea, find a good stock idea or a mutual fund idea, call your prospects, tell them about it, try to get them, you know, to take an interest to buy, you know, basically make them a customer first then, you know, make them a client. And so, yeah, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, that that got them, you know, interested and in the door but really, where I saw the opportunity—not only the opportunity, but where I wanted to live, so to speak—was in the planning world. I had a good buddy who was at Jones at the time, who pulled me aside and, and he said, "Look, stocks and bonds are, are great, and, and you really—you know—you got to do that. You—you know—create solutions for clients, but you really should get into financial planning." And and I respected him a lot. He was a very successful FA. And so I, I picked his brain. I said, you know, tell me, tell me more about planning. How do you do it? And, and that's where I really kind of fell in love with the industry because, you know, you get to hear people's stories and, and what was most important. And then, you know, as I said earlier, take the specialized knowledge that, uh, that I had and really, you know, build a plan for them to achieve those goals. And, and I loved it. I loved the planning side of it and anybody who would let me do a financial plan for them that's what i was doing and at the time not not a lot of um you know fee based business it was mostly you know just commission based business and you know the industry had had been changing already but then you know the dol and all that that's when i really said okay we we should really look at the fee based world and and what that means and you know, I'm, I'm grateful for my time at Edward Jones because they, they, you know, they taught me how to be a business owner. You know, that was something that was new to me. And we had a lot of, of planning tools inside the firm that, you know, I took every advantage of. And that's that's really where I found my niche was, was on the planning side because there were still a lot of advisors I knew that, you know, they, they kind of balked at financial planning. You know, like,
1: well, you know, whatever, you know, just get out there and sell you know i didn't necessarily subscribe to that if you can get the business done without doing a financial plan doing a financial plan is just a whole lot of extra work to get to the exact same sale you were trying to get to anyways sure sure for for a lot of folks i know that are on the the sales end of the business like that that still often is the the mentality and ironically well, i think a lot of firms have trouble getting even the firms that are trying to become more planning centric have trouble getting their their advisor sometimes to adopt planning software and use it more. It's like, well, you spent a long time training them how to get the sale without doing a plan. So why would they want to do it now? You already trained them how to how to get the sale without it. And that's what they built their business on. Exactly. Old dog new tricks. So so how did this go for you over the first year or two in in ter- in terms of trying to get get clients or assets or revenue going?
2: You know, I was not a super fast starter. You know, I spent more time with with individuals than, you know, maybe some of my peers were because relationship building was important to me. And, you know, I got my first client a month later. She's still with me to this day. But it, it was it was tough because I, I saw some of my peers, you know, that were, you know, just making just, just lots of money and, and I was doing okay. But I was really just focused on on being who I was, you know just just really being true to myself and and having those deep conversations with people and and that's kind of that's kind of to this day I think what helped me create some sticky clients and and really just kind of evolve into into where I'm at today.
1: so did you have any second thoughts as you were going through the the first year and going home looking at a I guess a 1-year-old coming up on 2-year-old and saying like I is this going to work? Am I going to be able to pay for college in another 16 odd years or so?
2: Yeah, there were there were definitely some of those those long drives home, but I I read a lot of Matt Oxley at the time because again, having never come from sales, I think his book was called Winning the Inner Game of Selling, and I convinced myself if i can just brainwash myself into believing that i'm going to make it you know just tricking my brain then you know those those ups will be great but those downs won't be so hard and so there was a lot of a lot of reading honestly and you know again talking to a lot of advisors from from brand new to all the way out i knew if i just followed the recipe and and talked to enough people and let them see who I was. That I would eventually make it. But yes, there were there were definitely some uh, some hard nights around the dinner table trying to figure out how we were going to, you know, save for retirement, pay for the kids. Oh, and by
1: the way, we still have to pay our bills. So yes, there there were some of those nights for sure. So were there other um, big books or things that had an impact on you besides Matt Oxley's winning the inner game of selling?
2: Yeah, you know, that was a big one for me. And then Edward Jones had a book available on their system. I think it was called 212 Degrees. It was a maybe a 30-page book. But the idea was, you know, at 211 degrees, water is hot. But at 212 degrees, it turns to steam and steam can power a locomotive. And that just resonated with me. Just that difference between Two hundred and eleven and two hundred twelve degrees, and and that was kind of an internal mantra I had. Like, you know, make one more call, go see one more person, work one more hour, and and I carried that a lot with me, uh, not only in the car but you know in my head to to continue to push myself to just continue to get out of your comfort zone because typically that's
1: that's where success lies. Oh, interesting. So, so it's it's all about like the the difference of that one extra degree, the difference of that taking taking one more step that can suddenly put you over the edge where, as you put it, you you go from hot water to the the steam that powers the the locomotive. So if I can just keep doing one more step, trying one more thing, doing one more call, getting one more out there, like that could be the one for me that suddenly turned it from hot water into a locomotive. Right. Right. So yeah, a lot of that,
2: a lot of self talk, you know, positive reinforcement and just trying to trying to maintain that positive mental attitude as long as I could, knowing that eventually I would get there. So yeah, there was there were some of those books. Duncan McPherson was another guy that I, I still follow. And he was more on the you know refining the the practice rather than the sale. And so I I took a lot from him. And the Is that, uh, like his playbook.
1: advisor advisor playbook series?
2: Yep. Yep. Absolutely.
1: Yep. So you got through the first year or two with surviving and I guess and then as you were getting a surviving stage, then you also got the opportunity to take over this office and and kind of get another step forward. Right. Right. So how does that work at Edward Jones if you're going to come in and and take over an, an, an office and a set of clients? Like do you do you, do you buy your way in do you buy your do you buy out the clients is it just well clients are actually clients of the firm anyways so you just kind of drop in as the servicing advisor how does that actually work
2: yeah yeah the latter there so basically you know i i just got plugged into that office there were some clients there and so i, I started calling them and introducing myself and just trying to get them to come in to to meet me. So luckily, there there was a bit of a base of clients there to start cultivating those relationships while I was out doing my other prospecting activities.
1: And I think you'd said before it was something like a hundred clients and seven or eight million dollars of AUM, right? So just good for context. Like that's an average client of seventy or eighty thousand dollars, which I think just reemphasizes sort of Edward Jones's middle market middle america approach right uh, a lot of advisory firms have average client sizes that are larger than that but this is heavily where edward jones lives
2: right and and i was in their their backyard basically i mean jones started in st louis and and really grew from there so luckily there was there was a lot of brand recognition but there were also advisors everywhere on every corner it's funny in this this one town that I I still live kind of next to literal stone throws
1: on on some of the, on some of the corners. So it's, it's like the Edward Jones in St. Louis is like the equivalent of Starbucks in some metropolitan areas where like you literally have multiple on the same block. Right. Absolutely. So what worked for you in prospecting and like just trying to get going and find clients? You know, that's a huge challenge for so many advisors getting started is just literally like prospecting and finding people. Where did you go? What did you find that worked? For me, it was it was
2: mostly residential. I just got out in the neighborhoods that were nearby and knocked on as many doors as I could and I used my sense of humor to you know, because nobody likes somebody coming to their door thinking that they're going to be sold something. And there were different advisors, you know, hey, you should say this, hey, you should say that. But honestly, de- depending on the time of year, you know, you know, around Halloween, you know, I'd knock on the door, say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm not out trick or treating. I'm, I'm a business owner from down the street. I'm just passing out my card. Or, you know, for the environment that we're in now, you know, I, I I would knock and say, Hey, you know, I'm not out here to ask for your vote. And usually they'd crack a smile, you know, and that bought me, you know, at least two minutes to to kind of get out why I was there. I had I had a lot of success on the doorstep.
1: All right. So just how does that work? Because I, I feel like for so many of us, you know, people are pretty well, people are pretty jaded about prospecting in general, but you know, door to door. I think sounds pretty brutal for most people. Like how did that actually work? I mean like just literally what did, what do you say as you are knocking door to door to try to get someone to actually do business with you?
2: Yeah, that that's that's the tough part. You know, I was very situationally aware, you know, so if I saw, you know, a bike in the driveway, you know, I I'd eventually, you know, touch on, you know, Hey, one of the things we, we help people do is plan for education savings. You know, what have you done for that? A lot of times I'd, I'd catch people at home in the middle of the day and, and say, oh, how, you know, how'd I happen to catch you at home? Oh, you know, I, I work from home. I'm a business owner. Oh, me too. Me too. So I, tr- I try to find as many commonalities as I could before I went into my, my spiel about, hey, you know, this is why I'm here I'm building a business here in town and, you know, I help people with various things. Let me leave you my card. If it's okay with you, I'd like to follow up, you know, in a couple of weeks and, and just see if you're still interested in saving for education. And And a lot of times they'd give you the phone number, but a lot of times they wouldn't. I never never got ran off the doorstep or, or anything like that. I did have the police called on me once. There just happened to be some some break-ins in the neighborhood, and and the the cop pulls up and he looks at me and he's like, "Are you the guy that they're calling about?" And I was in a full suit and tie, and he's chuckling, and, and I said, "Yeah, I probably am, but but I'm not the guy breaking in." And, uh, and you know, and I even I hit him up. I said, "Hey, you know, I uh, appreciate the job you do." You know, I I know some police. I know you guys aren't compensated. You know as much as you should be. But uh, here's my card. If I can ever help you, you know, grow your money, let me know. And, and he kind of he got a chuckle out of that. But it was definitely it was definitely did challenging. He, I gotta ask, did, did did he become a
1: client? He
2: didn't. No, no, he <laughs> no. did not. No, I I didn't have the. Uh, okay, there's like a
1: whole creative marketing strategy there about like. How to how to get your inroads in working with the fraternal order?
2: Yeah, I I didn't have the nerve to ask him for his phone number, so I, so I was never able to follow up with him. But if he's listening, you know, maybe he still has my card, but my numbers change. But yeah, that it was definitely challenging. But before I I jumped into the advisor field, when I was still in AML, I called a local advisor and I told him, hey, I'm considering being an advisor. Would you you know? I know how how you guys do it you know door to door a lot of the time will you take me out just so I can witness it and so we went out on a cold january saturday morning and we we knocked on doors for about an hour and and I just watched him in amazement i'm like he's getting people to open the door in january but he's getting people to talk to him and they're telling him intimate things about their finances. And, and so that kind of, that kind of, you know, I looked back on that a lot of the times and I said, that's when I'd say one more door. You know, if I, if I found somebody who wasn't very receptive, I right, one more door. Cause I remember there are people out there that, that will talk to you. It's, it's just a numbers game.
1: And so what was the process? Like the goal of knocking on the door at the end of the day is just to to earn the right to do a follow-up call with them with some inkling of where the opportunity may be. Uh, This is an education thing because I saw the bike. This is a small business retirement plan because they're a business owner from home. And then you're trying to do a follow-up with them to say, hey, I'd love to come out and meet again and just talk a little bit more about your financial situation and understand what I can do to help. Exactly. I tried to uncover a need with every conversation so that
2: when I went back or when I followed up with a call, I could refer back to that, which not only showed them that I was paying attention, but that i was serious. You know, a lot of people told me, wow, you know, you've got some moxie being out here in this neighborhood doing what you're doing. And a lot of people respected that even though they they maybe didn't give me the business, you know, it there were still some of those nice people that that at least
1: appreciated what it took to to be doing that. And what kinds of opportunities would you would you get from this? I mean, is this like opening $5,000 IRAs, opening uh you know 529 plan with some ongoing contributions of a couple hundred dollars a month, like those sorts of opportunities.
2: Yeah, there were some of those, but the the very first client that I earned was just so happened to be considering retirement and I said, "Hey, let me just get some information from you. I'll follow back up with you and just really kind of highlight how I can help and, and she agreed. She gave me her phone number. I followed up with a call about two weeks later and uh we sat in her living room and it was probably two hours and, and some of my advisor peers were probably like, you know, that's way too long. But she ended up becoming a client and I think she had You know, seven hundred thousand dollars at the time, and that was that was the first account I had opened, aside from Uncle Dan, and so I had that that one early success, and that's when I knew, okay, this is going to work. I just have to meet enough people that are like her, willing to just let me do that repeat visit to kind of highlight the firm I work with and and who I am.
1: And I guess did it did it help that at the end of the day, like. You were from Edward Jones. You had Edward Jones on your card. That's a a familiar name in general, and I guess particularly in the St. Louis area. Like, was that a factor, or was that not even really relevant? Because you're, I'm Drew. I'm a local business owner, and I just would love to talk to you and understand if I can help.
2: Yeah, I, you know, I think it did help more than more than it, you know, dissuaded people the name recognition was a good thing. And a lot of times, you know, I'd knock on a door, hey, you know, I'd, I'd get out my first 30 seconds and they'd say, oh, I'm already with Edward Jones. So there was, there was a lot of people I met said, oh yeah, I'm with you guys. Um, so i say, hey, good, you're with a great firm. I'll I'll get out of your hair.
1: Yeah, we got we to gotta get our central database fixed. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> so I, I do think it's, it's fascinating though that just, uh, that journey to me so makes the point around how much of the advisor business at the end of the day is still. I think as, as you had noted at one point, like it's it's that it's that game of numbers in in Nick Murray's terms. Like it's just you know, if you talk to enough people, you will come across a person that is having a problem and need at basically the exact moment that you happen to talk to them and knock on their door, and you get an opportunity to do business. You just have to talk to enough people and get through them fast enough to get to the ones that are ready to have that conversation and be able to capitalize it on it when you, when you actually make that connection.
2: Absolutely.
1: Yeah. And there was, there was a phrase
2: early on, you know, you'll take anyone who can fog a mirror. And and so literally, you know, like you said, you know, a lot of people started out well, you know, I don't have a lot of money to give you, but you know, a Roth IRA. Yeah. I heard my dad talking about that, you know, let's set up, you know, $250 250 a month into that. But then that blossomed into other things. You know, maybe, maybe I met the parents or or maybe they changed jobs. So I, I was not too proud to to just help those those people that didn't have a, a giant
1: nest egg to start out. And like I said, a lot of times that that led elsewhere. So you're building your career at at Edward Jones. You're not there anymore. So what what changed? What, what shifted, what, what led to some point where, I guess at some point you said, maybe this isn't the firm that I'm going to stay at in the long run.
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. There was, it was more so things that I couldn't do, you know, both on the investment side, you know, on the planning side, but, you know, as much on the resources side, you know, how I can grow and, and what I can offer and, and how I can brand myself. And for a while, you know, I, I was content. You know, I knew there was not a lot of creativity I could, I could put into the business. And that, that nagged at me for years, but it wasn't enough to, to make me want to go elsewhere. But over the years, I had had a couple of friends who, who left Jones and, you know, went to Wells or Merrill or wherever and just telling me, you know, about other opportunities and you know, and probably I don't know, right after I took over that office, the recruiting calls start coming in and hey, you know, we we want you to come to our firm because most most firms out there know that Edward Jones is I mean, probably to this day the best at training new advisors. And so they knew, you know, they knew the recipe. You know, they knew that The Ed Jones advisors are out there. You know, some of them going door to door, and so I think that appealed to them. So the recruiting calls come, and and you know, I blew them off for years, but you know, it was kind of the the two of those things coming together. And then you know, my mom is a creative writer and a poet, and so that's in my DNA, and and that always kind of nagged at me that you know you couldn't really go off the. Off the marketing radar, so to speak. You know, you, you can use the pre-approved white papers that we have, but you really can't come up with your own stuff. And eventually, that that got to me enough to where I said, "You know what? Let's just let's just see what else is out there." And, and I was I was a fan of yours and still am. You know, and I, I've read a lot of your stuff and and just everything else that was out there that. I couldn't necessarily do it Jones the way I wanted to. Those feelings just eventually nagged at me long enough till, you know, I just decided to take a peek. Can you describe
1: a little more? It's like, what, what was it you wanted to do that you just felt like you couldn't, you couldn't do there?
2: You know, for me, I like to do a lot of customized stuff. You know, Jones has just tons of great resources, But, you know, a lot of that, you know, clients, you know, at least my clients, you know, they'd they'd start to read something and, you know, probably just never finish it. But I wanted to inject my own personality, my own take on things and do it in a way that engaged people. And
1: you really, we we didn't really have is In terms of like the marketing material where you like you wanted to write more customized market commentary or letters or discussion with your clients and things like that. And, and, and Jones is requiring you to use the templates.
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and there were, I mean, there were some things that we could go to compliance for and, and try to get exceptions with, but that was, that was kind of a cumbersome process. They really wanted you to kind of use, use what they provided, but yeah, that, that nagged at me long enough. You know, I, I, Like I said, I like to inject humor where appropriate. And yeah, it just didn't feel like I had that option. I got told no a lot of a lot of times. No, you can't do that. No, you can't send that out. So we did what we could. You know, we we, you know, for example, we put together a client cookbook. We asked all our clients to submit recipes leading up to Thanksgiving, and we bound it and got got those out to clients. Newsletter we got approved. But, but I really felt like it was a lot harder to to do those things than it should be. You know, I saw some of my peers and what they were doing, and it's kind of like I kind of want some of that. I kind of want some of that that freedom to do those things
1: and you said as well that like the planning and investments and resources side were were limitations as well. It's like what was Edward Jones just so huge with the amount of resources they do have, so where were the like where were the planning and resources limitations that were still that were still grading on you?
2: So they had a really great tool, retirement tool, you know, to to see if you've done enough to save for retirement. And it was the only tool I ever had known. And so I loved it and I used it all the time. But the further I got into the business, the more I learned what other types of tech is out there and and planning tools and ways that you can work with clients and engage with them and and different ways you can charge for your services. It's not just, you know, commission or fee. And I'm proud to say now that I am set up for advice pay. So that was that was not an option I had. You know, I knew about eMoney and Money Guide Pro and the different CRMs. We just couldn't go get those. It was the in-house stuff is what you could use, and you really everything
1: ended. must be you. You use what Mother Jones says you will use. That's that's part of the deal, right? Right. And, and
2: like I said, for for the first few years, that was really all I knew. But the more I learned, the more I wanted to go out and you know grab these different providers to you know to build an experience that that i thought was beneficial for my clients and you know it was just kind of the coalescing of, of
1: all of that that kind of led me to to start looking around elsewhere so was there a particular like moment or impetus or transition point that said like i'm i'm going to i, I got to make this move or was this just i guess in the, in the spirit of the earlier conversation like just one degree too many at some point there was a a straw that broke the camel's back and and you said I think I'm going to start looking.
2: Yeah, it's it's hard to pinpoint you know an exact moment, but I forget where I was at. It was a due diligence meeting at at one of the mutual fund companies and I it just it just kind of clicked with me somehow that I wasn't actually a business owner. I was a W2 employee and the clients, although they probably saw me as their clients, they were really clients of edward jones and and that that hit me coming back from that meeting and and then you add in all the things I was wanting to do that that couldn't do that's that's kind of when it it clicked and said, "Okay, you know you can stay here for the next thirty years and build a great business and make a great living and be fine." but you know i i somewhat blame my mom for that creative itch that i was not scratching and so that the combination of all those things and again with the i guess realization that that really you know they said you're a business owner but at the end of the day the clients belong to the firm and that was that was kind of that was kind of finally the the final thing because my hope someday is that my son or daughter will will take over this business and I and I wanted more control in in how that played out. You know, I'm the guy that thinks 30 years down the road and you know, I wanted to have the succession plan that I wanted rather than, you know, what a large firm wanted.
1: So so how does that journey work? Like you've you've had the moment of realization like okay, I think I'm going to look I'm going to journey and see what's on the other side of the mountain and figure out if the pasture is greener there. It's like what actually happens next? Like how do you how did you actually proceed to to figure out what comes next?
2: So, you know, I was a student of of the industry, and so I knew who, you know, some of the bigger players were at least. And so I, I started a list of of some firms that, you know, I wanted to interview and I talked to some peers that had left and gone to those firms and you know I asked them a lot of questions you know what's better what's worse and I came down to a list of firms that you know I was really going to invest my time doing some some due diligence on based on you know would this be the place not only for me but a good place for my clients and then what some of the advisors were saying at those firms is especially the advisors that had left Jones and gone to those other firms
1: so were there like when you ask questions like what's what's better and what's worse what were the like the trigger points or the deal breakers that you were looking for of like what would make a firm a good firm or what would make a firm a bad firm
2: for me it was it was more about do they empower you to build the business the way you want, or do they really just get in the way, you know, with with either, hey, this is this is how you can do this or this is the platform we use for this and, and you really can't do anything else. But then also on the the investment side, you know, I, I I think I was probably seven years into the industry when I really started looking around. And by then I learned about just all these different products and some of them we just could not get. And, and there were products that, you know, in my mind were, were suitable, but for whatever reason, they didn't make it
1: onto the platform. And so like like what, I mean, just like what, what sorts of things were you trying to get to that, that just weren't available on the platform?
2: So, uh, you know, one of the things that jumps out is on the annuity side. You know, we had some good annuities on the books, but I learned about some some other types of, of products and features in the annuity world that, you know, oh, you know, I've, I've got a client that that would like that. And I remember talking to a lot of vendors over the years, a lot of wholesalers. And, you know, sometimes sometimes I don't know if they forgot where they were, but, you know, they'd start into, oh, and this is our fund. Oh, wait, I can't show you that one. And I'm like, well, why not? You know, and well, for whatever reason, it, it's it's not on the platform that and then there were some clients that had some investments that were held outside of Jones that once I uncovered that I you know I'd want to to bring that in. And there were there were some times that I was told no, you can't hold that here. And there wasn't really a good reason. You know, maybe you know, I don't know the behind the scenes stuff with selling agreements and all that, but you know, there there were some times I had to tell no the clients that you can't bring that in, or you, or you couldn't buy that. So having a wide menu on the investment side was important to me as
1: well. Okay, all right, gets into all those those challenges of the guts of what happens inside of uh, brokerage firms and how they may make money, and you know, selling agreements, twelve b one fees, sub ta fees, all these revenue sharing pieces that happen on the back end. Where you know, if a company won't won't pay the rev shares, they often don't get onto the platform which means you can't move the assets in if that's what clients are holding because the firm at the end of the day isn't getting paid on it and doesn't want to hold stuff they can't get paid on. So the frustration's building. You start looking at other firms. Was there like a a short list of the firms that you said, like here are the ones that I think I want to check out?
2: Yeah, there was. And it was three of them. After I did enough homework and, and talking to enough people, it came down to... LPL, which is is where I'm at now, and Raymond James and Commonwealth. those were the three that I really had a lot of phone calls and due diligence meetings with.
1: So why why those three? Like what, what was the what were the factors that were making making them appealing or interesting that that drew you in?
2: One of them was I knew people at, at each firm, probably a couple of people at least at each firm. And the other, the other thing, at least with LPL Raymond James, I had done enough prospecting and heard those names enough, <laughs> and some of those those doors I'd knock on, you know, they'd say, "Oh no, no, I, I'm with a private wealth advisor at Raymond James," or you know, my guy's over at LPL, he's independent. And, and I remembered those people talking, those you know prospects talking like that, like it was a symbol, like a sign of status. And so th- those things jumped out at me. But then I, you know, I asked a lot of questions around branding and marketing, because again, that was, that was one of my biggest frustrations at Jones. And it seemed like those firms were willing to let me to some extent build how I want and market how I want. And that that's kind of why it came down to those three. It seemed like they had the, the greatest
1: freedoms, so to speak. Okay. So you've, Freedom to let you market the way you want it, and then freedom on the product shelf to get pretty much whatever you want for your clients. So, so then, how did you ultimately make a decision between the three?
2: That was tough. It was oh man. So this was about a year in planning, and I had I had done enough homework to take it to the next step, and the next step was a you know in person due diligence meeting. And so I called up a buddy of mine who was at LPL and I said, hey, you know, I'd, I'd really like to come pop the hood. Who's the recruiter? And so I reached out to the recruiter and he said, oh, yeah, absolutely. We, we would love to invite you out. So I flew out to San Diego where LPL, one of their headquarters is, and we did their due diligence meeting, my wife and I. They flew us both out and we spent a whole day just learning from the different departments, the resources they had, and this was right right around the time COVID was just starting. M- maybe maybe a little bit after, yeah. Because I remember flying back and and hearing on the news, you know, COVID had, I you know, I don't know where it started in the U.S. at least, but California had just had a case or two, and and so we this got is, this is like
1: like January, February timeframe. Yeah, it was February
2: and we got back and I was, ex- I was not expecting to be as impressed with LPL as I, as I was. And so we got back and my wife and I, you know, just kind of looked at each other and, and she wasn't expecting much either because she had only known Jones and Jones has a very strong brotherhood and, and, you know, why would you ever leave? And, and she said, wow, you know, this this seems like a really good opportunity for, for what you know, you've know you expressed your frustrations are. And, and so I was getting ready to go do a due diligence meeting at Raymond James, and I think they started imposing travel restrictions. Oh. <laughs> so I, I did a lot of over the phone due diligence with them, as
1: well as with, with Commonwealth as well. Interesting, but you never got to do the trip because suddenly travel started getting shut down.
2: Exactly. And I, I, you know, I I didn't jump on the chance at LPL. I came back and just let it marinate for several weeks. And I had kind of talked enough with Raymond James to know that they kind of felt more like Edward Jones than, than I wanted. I, you know, I can't put my finger on exactly
1: what that was to this day, but I just got They they are, they are a firm similar to Edward Jones that has an employee channel. They also have an independent channel, but they, you know, they, they do live a little bit more of, I think the centralized Raymond James brand, which depending on your preferences is a plus or a minus, Whereas you know the always kind of the interesting effect for LPL as large as it is in the industry and so well known the industry, and I think literally the largest headcount of of independent advisors, uh, like no one knows that brand in the consumer world at all. Like they just they haven't really put themselves out there. they don't they don't live as a consumer brand. they live as an advisor brand and then the advisors brand, however, they're gonna brand themselves out into the into the marketplace. So I, I can imagine just that, It feels a little different as someone that was really focused on building their own brands. That not that Ray J doesn't allow a lot of flexibility on the independent channel, but there is a different style to the Raymond James brand than the LPL brand.
2: Right. Yeah, and that you hit the nail on the head. It just felt more like I could really be who I wanted at LPL. And they said, "Hey, if you want to do this, we'll help. If you want to do that, we'll help that." And they had a really good department for M and A, which was never even on my radar at Jones. It never had even crossed my mind really, but that was one of the the teams that we met during the due diligence meeting and that resonated with me because as I'm sure you know, the average advisor out there is probably 55 to 60 years old, you know, toying with the idea of retirement. And LPL really kind of highlighted that as a benefit that I, you know, had never even thought of, the ability to go Buy a book of business someday if I want to do that. They re- that really spoke to me. I not you know, who knows if I'll do it. But it was nice to have that resource baked into LPL.
1: Interesting. Were there other as you went and did your due diligence? Like were there other, I guess, resources or things that that were resonating with you that you know, made you come back? And even the wife was like, "Yeah, that, they. Have, I'm really impressed. <laughs> it seemed like they'd be really good for you."
2: Yeah, I had some buddies that had recently left Jones and went to LPL, and so I spoke with them a lot. But then the other thing was just the the amount of resources that LPL had. You know, I asked a lot of questions around, you know, what can I do? You know, what needs to be approved? And and they really said, you know, we're not here to get in your way. You know, we're here to support you. And that was. A very loud message. They were the loudest at that message. And that, that, that's, I kept coming back to that. You know, they, they take care of their advisors so that the advisors can take care of their clients, not, you know, not them in between.
1: Whereas the world of Edward Jones, Edward Jones is very much in between because it's literally Edward Jones's client and you're a W 2 employee. Right. Right. So you get to the point where you decide you want to make this decision and now you're at, well, I guess, so I, I guess what was the trigger? Like how, how did you ultimately get to the final decision of LPL and and deciding what comes next?
2: So I spoke with the the recruiter after the due diligence meeting and I said, hey, you know, I really, I really like LPL. I really like what they had talked to me about. I just don't know. And he told me about this RIA inside of LPL called Cornerstone Wealth Management. And he said, you should really call these guys because there was a lot of former Ed Jones advisors that had tagged up with Cornerstone. And so I m- went and met with Cornerstone and it was it was very much like Jones. Yeah, there was kind of that brotherhood feel. Some of the guys I, I had already known previously, but by by tagging up with Cornerstone inside of LPL, it afforded me a lot of the luxuries that I was used to at Edward Jones that I didn't want to necessarily go out and get myself. You know, they had a full have a full time marketing director. You know, the compliance, just the they have a coaching team. They provided ninety days of uh, you know a full time dedicated assistant, and so you know. You know, oftentimes I hear independent or independent light, and I guess you could say I went independent light because I plugged in with Cornerstone. But I wanted to spend my time with clients, and you know, they really said, you know, you could plug in with us. We've got a turnkey system. By the way, we've got a lot of former Edward Jones advisors that that know exactly what you're going to go through. And that was that was very warm and comforting to me to know that that I could plug in with uh, with Cornerstone and still come to LPL.
1: And so, is, like, is Cornerstone local to the area? Or are they just like a bigger roll up of lots of different LPL advisors that they support?
2: They're actually about half a mile down the street from the Edward Jones home office. coincidentally. Oh man, okay, yeah. So. I I know. I think. Yeah, yeah, one or maybe two of the founding members there, the partners were were Edward Jones guys as well. And so that I've really liked that and then again the just the kind of the turnkey system they had. But yeah, they are they they're starting to grow all over though. I think there's offices in several different states that that wrap up under Cornerstone.
1: Okay. And and so So as it works like they're your local supervisor, they're your like broker dealer OSJ and the RIA that you affiliate with as a as a hybrid then? Right. Okay. And 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 how does that work from the business perspective? Like they they get a percentage of your revenue the way that that Jones got a percentage of your revenue? Do you play like a flat fee for the platform? Like how how does that actually work?
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's a percentage, not nearly as big of a haircut as I was taking, but yeah. And then as your business grows, that, uh, that, that
1: percentage gets smaller. So, so for those who aren't familiar, like what do those percentages look like? Like what was the, I guess, haircut as you put it, like what, what's the haircut that Jones typically takes? And then what kind of haircut do you face when you're at, at cornerstone?
2: You know, I think it, it's probably similar in some other big broker dealers, but you know, basically like a, a 60-40 split. But then, like I said, when you're when you're in that
1: sound, which means you, you you get the sixty or the firm gets the sixty. The firm gets the sixty. Okay, you got and you got the forty. Right. Okay, and then how does it work at Cornerstone?
2: So for me, where I'm at now, three percent
1: is what they take. So it's 97 to you and 3% to them.
2: Yeah. And then LPL, you know, they have their 10%. So, you know, all in, you know, between LPL and Cornerstone, basically 13% goes to them. this is of course, before any, you know, expenses, of course, but, but yeah. And and that, you know, that was not a motivator for me. The, the payouts that was, uh, you know, it, it was such a back burner issue. I was so frustrated with branding and marketing and all that, that, you know, that was my primary motivator, but it also doesn't hurt when the paycheck shows up now.
1: So you decide like, you're going to make the shift. You're going to do it with cornerstone. So at this point, like you're ready to go. Is that, is that the point that you were, that you were geared up once, once the cornerstone kind of dropped into the picture?
2: Yeah, I, I did a due diligence with them. And I said, okay, this makes the most sense. It it feels like the positive parts of Jones. And I said, okay, if I'm gonna do it, this is the way I'm going to do it. And of course, right in the midst of COVID, and so I sat for, you know, a couple weeks, you know, and, and I think at that time we we got kind of a, a mandate at Jones, you know, you've gotta close your offices. You can't be seeing people face to face but we still expect you to be in the office. And so I, you know, I was officing, you know, usually in the office, but I, you know, I'd work from home from time to time. And, And I remember calling a buddy of mine who, who left Jones and went to LPL. And I said, Hey, am I crazy, you know, for doing this at this time? And he's like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, COVID. He's like, Oh my gosh, I didn't even think about that. And, I said, yeah, it's, it's kind of a, a big deal. He said, yeah, you, you might want to wait until this is over. You know, and, and as I hung up the phone with him, I was thinking, you know, if if I wait, you know, maybe, maybe there will never be the right time or, or a perfect time to leave. And so I just, I said, you know what, I, I've done enough homework to know that there's something more that I want out there. And there's there's no better time than the present, and so I I took the leap. Well,
1: And so when was that? I resigned on April twentieth. Okay. So I get your taxes filed first. It's good timing. Yeah, exactly. I, we're going to and then we extend the tax deadline. So so how does it work when you're resigning from Edward Jones and? And looking to make this shift, but you've got this environment where like technically you're a W two, technically the clients, are the clients of the firm, not yours. Like, how does this work now? Yeah, that
2: was that was the scary part. You know, it was I can't remember if it's a non compete or non solicit, but you know, I'd signed a contract basically saying when you leave, you you know, you can't take anything with you. And so that that was the scary part was not knowing, you know, are, are people going to actually come with me, you know, but, you know, ultimately I I came back to those relationships and I said, you know what, you know, the payout is higher. So, you know, even if everybody doesn't come, maybe I won't take as big a hit as I, as I thought, but the hard part was, was just having to keep that quiet after I'd made up my decision, you know, had a lot of good client relationships that were really, Became more like friends, and you know, I was I was bound to my contract. I couldn't tell them, you know, that I was contemplating this until I actually
1: left. Yeah, it's it's one of the hardest things, I I think, for advisors when when you make the shift. You know, your employment contracts. I mean, employer even as an as an independent or a broker dealer, like you are a representative of your broker dealer until you are not. So, you know, soliciting your client, I mean, never mind non-solicitation agreements about soliciting soliciting them after you leave, soliciting them while you still work there for the new firm you're going to is pretty much strictly forbidden anywhere at any time. But what that means in practice is you can have clients you have incredibly close relationships with that you spend all this time with over years and years and years, and you can't tell them what's going on until after the fact, which I, you know for most advisors that break away there's usually at least a few clients that that don't come because they feel offended that you didn't tell them like i thought we were so close how could you not tell me this and you know i was legally prevented still doesn't overcome it for some clients
2: yeah that that there were a couple of, of folks that you know maybe maybe were offended maybe maybe that's the right word but yeah like you said you know they they really you know really wanted <laughs> wanted to know that I was even thinking that, and you know I'd explained you know i I just could not tell you I wasn't going to you know violate that.
1: It was kind of hard so as you're looking at this transition, like what was the expectation like just I'm going to make the switch, and I hope my clients like me enough that they're going to look me up on the other side. Did you have some strategy about how to message them to let them know that you had left and made a change without otherwise violating the employment agreement? Or were you just like built my business once door to door, can do it again, at least I'll have a higher payout this time. Like and just saying i I'm gonna build from scratch? Like what was your what was your expectation as you were making this shift?
2: It was it was all of the above. You know, I I'd read enough and listened to enough podcasts. I listened to Mindy Diamond to know that a lot of those relationships were with the advisor and not the name of the broker dealer, and I put a lot of faith in that. And then my ability—not only those relationships, but even if all else failed, my ability to go out and and just do it from scratch again—I I knew, you know, that I wasn't afraid to to go door to door if it came to that. But yeah, there was there was a lot of hoping that that they would come, and then you you know. You basically resign and send out what's called a tombstone letter, you know, saying, "Hey, this is where I'm at now. Look me up." And I, you know, I spoke with you know an attorney, and you know, they gave me some some tips on on how to leave the right way. Even social media, you know, after I left, I, I put a post on on Facebook, you know, just very generic, just saying, "So excited to open the new chapter of my life at Stotler Wealth Management," and. A lot of people saw the post. I I think I put it on Facebook and LinkedIn and you know, a lot of people called me and they're like, Hey, what's going on? You know, what what do you mean? You know, did did you leave Edward Jones? So there was some confusion. You know, a lot of people like hit like on the post, but then they sent a comment saying, Well, are you still at Edward Jones?
1: Oh interesting. So so because some of these folks were connected to you on social media or followed you on social media, like you didn't you didn't have to go out to solicit them per se, but you could at least announce you were doing a new thing, and you know if they see that in your public notice, that was that was their discovery. <laughs> it's like the the digital equivalent of you know if I put a billboard up in town, up in town, and my former clients drive by, like I'm not soliciting them. I just put a billboard up for everyone. Which I actually know one advisor that did at one point. So, you know, you, you did the digital version of the billboard, which is announce on social media, hey, I've got this new firm. And I guess and and some former clients started reaching out to say, hey, what's going on? I want to know more. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You
2: know, a lot of them called in and, and were, you know, confused. Um, some of them instantly understood and they're like, Hey, you know, this is awesome. This is gonna be so good for you you know especially the business owners i had, i had a close friend who was a client and and he in a totally different field but he did the same thing about a year prior and, and i watched him go through that and i watched you know his business clients said hey well we want to come with you and and so there was a lot of that you know a lot of that well what does this mean for me and you know what's that look like on the other side so a lot of you know education on as to why I left and what that meant for them.
1: And so how do you explain that of just why did you leave and and what does it mean for them?
2: You know, I, I basically told everybody that, you know, I was very grateful for my time at Jones, but the way the world is going and rapidly evolving, I wanted to be able to offer more to my clients, but also build the business I wanted the way I wanted. And, and a lot of them understood that. And one of the big things for me was being able to, to do digital, to, to do video. And at least at the time at Jones, you, you couldn't really do Facebook videos or, or YouTube videos and stuff like that. And of course it was right in the midst of COVID too. And that was a, it was a big driver for me of, Hey, if I could snap like a quick 30 to 60 second market update, push it out there. I can calm a lot of fears pretty quickly whereas you know it, the old way it was you know call everybody and don't get me wrong, I'm still calling clients, but there was a lot more efficiency that that spoke to me and and you know they kind of understood that.
1: So how did this transition work? Is this literally like turning my resignation letter on Friday show up with Cornerstone on Monday? It was it was on a Monday when I left.
2: You know, I, I called my assistant and I said, You know, are are you in the office yet? And she was not. And I said, Well, I'm not going to be there when you get there. And there was this long pause. <laughs> so your assistant didn't even know. No, no. Because and, and that's for two reasons. One, because I didn't want to jeopardize her because if I had told her I was going to leave and she didn't turn me in. I I didn't want her to be on the line for not reporting me. And conversely, you know, say say we didn't have the relationship I thought. I also didn't want her to turn me in, you know. Uh, yeah. Yes.
1: Actually find out that she is going to turn you in would also be an unfortunate discovery. Right. Yep. Right. But I, you know, I told
2: her, you know, I'm doing this, you know, it's nothing against you, but you know, I have to take this new opportunity. I wish you all the best and
1: and that was the last time I had spoken with her, actually. Then when does it like when do you get switched over and start actually trying to get going with Cornerstone?
2: So it was on that same day. You basically you know you even if i I had a couple clients call early that I could not even take their call until my licenses
1: had transferred over to LPL. I would think, so they're like scrambling to activate your licenses at the new firm, like in real time as you're making this transition, I guess LPL is doing that in the background.
2: Right. I called my regional leader and area leader. I got to the office early and I didn't reach either one of them, you know, so I, I sent an email and I copied, you know, each other in just so, you know, that I would officially resign. And then the phone calls started coming in from the regional leader, the area leader, and and just a bunch of advisors that were friends and on the leadership team, a lot of like, where'd you go? What's going on? You know, come back. We can fix it. It was a very (laughs) nerve wracking several hours waiting for those licenses to transfer, but it did happen the same day. So fortunately, I was able to to speak with some clients at first day to start explaining where I had gone. So what so what came next? Well, we basically you know, we we're taking those calls the first few days and, and just kind of going through the script, letting people know why. And you know a lot of people thankfully said, hey, we want to come with you. So it was you know scrambling quickly to, to meet
1: with them. And they're calling just based on the social media announcement. So they're also calling from the the tombstone letter.
2: Yeah. And the, you know, the way the attorney explained it was, you know, if their information is in the public domain, you can, you know, you can call them. And so I, I subscribed to, I think, intellius.com, you know, and, and I'd try to find some phone numbers and I was very specific in my wording. You know, I, I was not solicitous if that's a word. I was just, Hey, Michael, it's Drew. I just wanted to let you know that I've started a new chapter in my life. I've I've opened up, Stotler Wealth Management over at LPL. You have some options, and I just wanted to see what questions you have, and then I would just shut up, and you know they'd be like, "Well, why'd you leave?" or "How do I come with you?" And then I, you know, I could go into the the explaining the process after that of gathering a statement and, you know, submitting the ACATs
1: and all that. And so, so I guess you get a combination, like you post to social media, you send the tombstone letter, which for those who aren't familiar, is basically just a blanket message, a a blanket letter that says like, you no longer with Edward Jones and here's your new contact information. Like you can't, as far as like, you can't say basically anything else but that. So at least if they're curious, they can find you.
2: Exactly. Yeah, that was my hope was that they would they would find me and I'm very active in the community. I'm an alderman in my town. I'm on several boards. And so the word got out quick, thankfully. So there was there was a lot of inbound calls just, you know, for that reason just people <laughs> checking on me like what's going on. But yes, yeah, to your point, very just factual, you know, at no point you know, did I say, hey, please come with me? You know, it was just saying, hey, this is where I'm at now. What questions do you have about that?
1: So you're looking client information, former client information, up publicly from, I guess, just the people you remember, because you can't actually take a list, but work with them for a long time, can remember their names. You get to send the tombstone letter. You get to announce on your social media for anybody who happens to see it, and then just start having phone calls and see who would like to continue the relationship with you at your new firm.
2: Exactly. Exactly.
1: And so, and so how did that, I mean, how did that go? Like, were most clients reacting well, Where did you get to connect with most? Were you only getting a few? Like, how, how was it going as those conversations got underway? You know, I felt
2: like it, it was going pretty well. You know, it what complicated it was COVID. You know, a lot of people were like, you know, hey this sound sounds really good yeah maybe let's talk after after things calm down but then you know those other clients were like hey you know we want to come with you and so I I felt more positive than I did worried but then you know I got a letter you know saying you you can't be contacting your clients and this and that oh, so this
1: is this is Jones now like we've noticed you've left and you're talking to former clients right we- Speak with you. Yeah. Yeah. And that was the,
2: that throat, that lump in the throat. I'm like, oh, wow. Okay. I thought I did everything right. I didn't take anything with
1: me. Um, Oh, crap. (laughs) Um, So, were you working with, I mean, you had mentioned counsel a few times, like, were you working with a lawyer throughout this transition already? Very early
2: in the process, LPL offered you like like an hour or two phone call with, with an attorney that you could kind of talk through that with them.
1: And so just when to I- walk you through like, you are allowed to do this, you are not allowed to do that. Like, let's just get really clear on the rules. Yep. Yep. Okay. But you didn't necessarily have like ongoing legal counsel at this point or anything.
2: No, no, not at that point.
1: So what is the, so, so what happens? Like, what does the Jones letter say? And then like, what do you do at that point?
2: Well, they had sent me my, my contract that I had signed and said, you know, as a reminder, uh, you know, you're bound to this. And I didn't feel like I was violating it. You know, I wasn't asking anyone to come with me. And like I said, I didn't take any information with me when I left. And so I called that attorney and I said, "Hey, this is what that letter says. What do I do?" And he said as long as you didn't take anything and and you're not actively asking people to come with you, you're fine. You don't need to engage with outside counsel. And so by, you know, I said, "Okay." So I
1: just I kept taking the calls and trying to, you know, get the word out. So this wasn't like it's not like they filed a restraining order or anything against you. This was just sort of the we just like to remind you about your contract, right, right.
2: And so that was that was scary enough. But like the attorney said, you know, he said, you know, just don't don't do the things we told you not to do, and, and you're fine to proceed. About a week later, it was a Saturday morning. I was just leaving a client's house who had a, who had said they wanted to come with me. And my wife had called by the time I got back to the car after the appointment, my wife had called like 15 times, like no joke. And I'm like, okay, well, I better call her back. And so I called her and she said, hey, where are you? You need to get home. And I said, what's wrong? What's wrong? You know, Are the kids okay? And she said, yeah, there's a guy here and he has this big pack of paper and he needs to talk to you. And I said, oh, God. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's not good. No, and the the guy had to go somewhere else that day, or, or or that hour. I guess he had more papers to deliver. He left the phone number with my wife. He told her to tell me to call him on on the way home, and I called him, and he said, "Hey, I'm I'm really sorry to ruin your weekend. I have some legal documents I need to deliver to you, and." So I said, you're being, you're being served. Right. Right. (laughs) And I got, Mm -hmm. I got home and, uh, you know, I called him. I said, Hey, you know, let's, let's get this done. And he was a very nice guy. Very nice guy. He's like, I do, I do this all the time. I'm sorry, but, but here it is. And I don't know, it it felt like it was two or 300 pages long. I, I don't know how long it actually was, but
1: yeah, it was a TRO. Okay. So at that point, Jones has actually hit you with the temporary restraining order, and and like, what did it, what did it say in practice? Like, what 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 exactly was it supposed to prevent you from doing? From from reaching out to anybody. So now we're at the you can't talk to them at all. You you can't even call them off and tell us kind of thing.
2: And so that's when I called that attorney that I had my onboarding call with, and I said, hey, you know, I know it's only five days later, but. Now I have this, and he said, "Okay, now you need to to hire outside counsel." And so, you know, as they say, I had to lawyer up. It was a firm out of I think Denver that I partnered with. To
1: I say who did you, who did you work with, or I mean, how do you even find the law firm? Is this like a Google on a Saturday morning for lawyers for advisors with TROS?
2: No, I called. I called the guys at Cornerstone. Cause they, you know, they were with me, you know, throughout the whole process, checking in seeing how it's going. And, and I called them and I said, Hey, this is what just showed up. And they said, okay, call this person at this law firm. We've used her before. And so I called
1: her and, and just, we started. So can I ask like, who is the lawyer? I mean, just who is the lawyer of the firm you ended up working with?
2: Kimberly Cronin. I think it's, Cronin Mesner Reeves or or something like, I can't remember the name of the firm,
1: but yeah, that was, and And it's like, this is, this is what they, this is what they do is dealing with situations like this. Right. Right. Okay.
2: And so I called her and and told her what had just happened and, you know, she, she was very helpful and she, you know, basically said, you know, you've, you've got, you've got some options, you know, you can try to fight it or, or we can try to,
1: you know. Try to squash this. Squash it, meaning just like settle, come to some agreement, and walk away, as opposed to fight.
2: Right? Yeah. You know, she told me. You know, I, I've helped dozens of advisors, probably even more than that, over her twenty years, and she said, if 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 you didn't do what they're saying, you can fight it. But you know, we could be here, you know, eighteen months later, still fighting it. You know, Jones has big pockets, you know, and they can afford to drag it out in court. And and I said, "Well, what's what's Plan B?" And and she said, "Well, we we try to reach some type of agreement with them." You know, I was out of principle. I I I wanted to fight it. You know, I I hadn't done anything. You know that I that I thought was wrong. Apparently, they thought otherwise. But I said, "You know what? I really want to focus on my clients. So let's let's not do Plan A. I don't I don't want to be in court." for 18 months or however long it would take. And and that's around the time because of of course all of this is googleable. This is information in the public domain. So I'm I'm not revealing anything here, but I think it hit investment news, it hit a couple different, you know, advisor publications. You know, I had people from people I've never met from All across different firms, you know, reaching out to me saying, you know, fight them, fight them, you know, other, other people just being supportive saying, Hey, you know, this is still going to be the best decision
1: you ever made. And, oh man, that was such a, such a punch in the gut. And so, and so did you ultimately choose plan B, like come to some settling resolution and move forward?
2: Yeah, basically all, all I'm allowed to say now is, is the matter has been resolved. We, we've reached an agreement. And
1: and you are an LPL advisor now. Uh yeah, uh, I'm I'm still here. I'm alive and breathing. So how like how do you think about looking f- like looking forward from here? I mean, is this like does it still feel like Jones and this and and like uh, a settling resolution with them is a burden, away to carry, or is this a like okay, I'm done. That phase is behind me. Now I'm just looking forward, like. How do how do you how do you think about this moment?
2: Yeah, that's that's a tough question. I mean, it's a little of both. You know, I really only want to look forward, but I think there were some clients that that didn't come because they they got wind of that. You know, it maybe scared them, and, and there were there were some of those that that were just you know more loyal to to Edward Jones than they were to me, but. But yeah, it definitely slowed me down for a minute you know i I had to deal with all that for it felt like two weeks i you know i don't I don't remember how long it actually was. It's kind of a blur now but but yeah, the matter is behind me and and we're we're
1: looking forward and I guess that's just that's part of the part of the dynamic and the reality is as you noted, just for large firms like they do have deep pockets you know for I think for a lot of advisors breaking away, this is my livelihood and my career. For a lot of large firms, like this, is just part of the cost of doing business. We slow people down when they're leaving, so we can try to retain more clients, and maybe that will dissuade some others who don't want to take that same risk. And and so the you know the lawsuits and the TROS persist.
2: Yeah, and it you know I I took it personal because you know I bled green as they say. You know I was I was a trainer. I was on the leadership team. You know, I, for three years in a row, I gave up two weeks out of my life to go to the KYC trainings just as a, what what they call a visiting bet, to mentor those new advisors. And, you
1: know, I was, I was offended that, that they did that. Uh, because it felt like I, I, yes, I left, but I gave a lot to this company while I was there, but they still took a, a swing the moment I left, even though I really did follow the book. So. So what comes next oh man
2: it, it's been a it's been a whirlwind just looking at all the different options I didn't have but the dust has pretty much settled with my transition and so now we' we're, we're looking forward to implementing some of the things we didn't have access to before and really just continuing to, to serve the client base that that did come but also, getting the word out because at least in the town I'm in and the next town over, it's a hundred percent Edward Jones. And so I'm really just out there, you know, trying to let people know there there's another option and, and what that looks like. And then just taking advantage of, of some of the, the business building, I guess, techniques that I didn't have before. So, you know, we're doing things on YouTube, With videos and we're blogging i just got approval to to start a podcast someday down the road i'll i'll write a book about what i don't know but that's my mom and me that creative writer coming out but but yeah we're very grateful for the opportunity that we have and you know even even looking back no if i knew going into this that this was going to happen i still would have made the same choice
1: meaning even even if you knew Edward jones was going to come after you and and it was going to get bumpy right right i'm i'm much
2: happier you know i i was happy as an advisor but i wasn't all the way fulfilled
1: before and and now i have that feeling so what's what surprised you the most about trying to build your advisory business as you've done this over the past 8 years or so
2: What surprised me the most is how quick I could build trust with people. I think I had heard, I don't know if this was at Jones or or, or just in the industry, but I had heard, you know, it takes about five to seven meetings, or maybe not meetings, but conversations with someone to move them from, you know, prospect to client. And I was surprised that. You know, I was able to shorten that gap. I don't know. Maybe I have very trusting eyes. I'm not sure, but that that was one of the big surprises. Was once I get people into the office, I think I do a good job of letting them know who I am and that I'm really there for them rather than you know to serve some large firm. So I was I was surprised at at I guess my conversion ratio. How quick uh, people would sign up.
1: So, as you look back over this whole journey, what was the low point for you?
2: The low point was was the TRO. That was definitely the the low point. Just having never gone through something like that in my life, you know, no lawsuit or, or, or anything like that. That was that was a very scary moment. So I, so, I guess I would say that would would be the low point for that transition.
1: And that didn't resolve until you came to your agreement about how you were going to resolve and get to the point where the matter is now settled. Right, right. So as you look back over the the whole journey, I guess even back back to the beginning and starting your career with Jones, like what what do you know now that you wish you could go back and tell you eight years ago when you were in the AML department trying to ask people for advice about becoming an advisor? You
2: know i and I've said this a lot, and this is true of other advisors that I know. I wish I would have got into the industry five years earlier. I wish I would have put more faith in myself early on to not only take the leap to independence but just just to become an advisor because it's such a great it's such a great job I mean it's you know knowledge for profit, you know we don't make widgets or anything like that. there's no product per se it lives in the relationship at least you know that i've found so yeah i would i would go back and tell myself
1: to start even earlier what advice would you give to other younger or newer advisors coming into the industry today i would say spend the time with the people that matter you know growth
2: at some firms is such a heavy message whether it's take on as many clients as you can get or whether it's recruit advisors, you turn off that noise and really do a deep dive in what you want, not only, you know, out of the business, but out of life and what you want it to look like 30 years from now. A lot of, a lot of people can't think that far ahead, but you know, I just, I really spent a lot of time asking myself where I wanted to be in 30 years and and what I wanted that to look like. So I would encourage people to really do do some soul searching and well, you know, and look at look around. I mean, I think there's a big or it's probably been going on for years. I just never knew it, but a big shift in the industry to more of that holistic wealth management model, you know, not just sell a stock bond mutual fund. How can you really help people tackle problems they don't even know that they they have or or uncover goals that, you know, they didn't even know were important to them until you had that deep conversation with a good financial advisor that was really just there to to ask them
1: the questions rather than spew a bunch of information at them. So as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And and one of the themes that always comes up is just even the word success means different things to different people. And so you 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 build a successful path at Edward Jones. You're now, I guess, in a little bit of the rebuilding phase two going forward. But I'm I'm wondering, how do you define success for yourself at this point? You
2: know, for me, success, you know, is about specifically with my practice, at least, having the clients get that feeling, you know, seeing that you're actually Changing someone's life—I mean, it's such a powerful thing—and sometimes people don't appreciate that enough. But you know, we've we've watched clients pass away and get get married and babies, and it's just those are the most important things in their life, and, and we get to be there not only to witness it but to help them take on that next phase. So, success to me is. Are the clients that I serve, are they better off after having, you know, signed up with us? And not only that, but a work, you know, work-life balance gets thrown around a lot. You know, I've, I've luckily at Jones too, I had the work-life balance, but, you know, being able to now truly be a business owner, to build it the way I want, my name's on the door, and someday, you know, if my kids want to take this over, you know, it's still Stotler Wealth Management. And and that to me was, was a big deal. And, you know, right now my, my 10-year-old daughter, you know, she's going to be a TikTok dancer or something, you know, she's big into TikTok. And my son's going to be either a football player or a firefighter, but they're both really smart kids and they're good with numbers. And I don't want to indoctrinate them too young, but, you know, success to me down the road would be I'd be able to hand this business off to them with these relationships with these people who not only know them but but also see them as kind of like little grandkids in in a way.
1: I love it. I love the the very long play on on next generation succession planning with uh with a ten year old and younger. <laughs>
2: And the kids the kids love the videos. They're they're we're trying to figure out a way. We can we can do a video with them, you know. We we do our own little videos around the house and you know, my daughter's always drawing the Stotler Wealth Management logo and stuff like that. So they're going to be interested in the business whether they know it or not. And and if nothing else, if I raise two little entrepreneurs,
1: then then I've done well. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Drew, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you. It's been an honor.
0: Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com